Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. This week's episode is part two of our 2023 highlights. Today, we'll continue to review some of my favorite moments from this year's episodes, specifically from 145 to 158. In this episode, discover what's possible when we learn together. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you the Global Autism Community. In episode 145, I had the pleasure of speaking with Gwen Palafox, a licensed psychologist with a focus on helping teens and young adults find their most fulfilled and joyful lives. Here's Gwen explaining how the right environment can help you find a sense of belonging. We understand that flowers need their own habitats, animals need their own habitats, but we, for some reason, forget that human beings who are even more complex also respond to their habitats, Mm -hmm. right? Actually, environment plays a huge role. What's in the environment and who's in that environment plays such a large role in oppressing or suppressing or supporting. But I think that's like where we can really empower people. It's like, no, 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 you don't need to change your brain. Like, don't do that. Like, please, actually, please don't. Like, please, let's have some variability in the world. And this is where the creativity comes in way more than thinking about something in the same old way. Like the way that my clients think boggle my mind. I mean, they are heads and shoulders. I mean, IQ, cognitive point. I mean, you know, they blow me away. I'm in awe of them all the time because of the ways in which they connect information and think. And it's thrilling to me, actually. It it makes my curious muscle just fire like crazy because I just want to know and I want to know and I want to know. <laughs> but more importantly, it's like, you don't have to be. You don't have to fit everywhere. You don't have to mask all the time. And actually, if you are going to mask, please make that a time that's important to you. And that's why you're masking. You're choosing to do that. But you shouldn't do that all the time. I mean, no one can sustain that. And that's why, you know, by the time sometimes they get to me in their 20s, they've got burnout. Mm. And it is real. And so it's really, really hard to come out of that and to recover from that when you've had a couple decades worth of masking and really ignoring what it is that you need, your brain needed. Autistic self-advocate and BCABA, Andrew Bennett, joined me for episode 146. Andrew has been a dedicated member of our community since 2019 and even recently served as a moderator in our online global autism community. He also contributed to our responsive skills training as a committee member and has traveled on two Skill Corps volunteer trips, first to the Czech Republic and more recently to Kenya. Listen to Andrew's advice for future autistic Skill Corps travelers. The most important thing that I would say to autistic self-advocates is that you matter and you have dignity and you're different for a reason and you're going to experience that if you sign up for this trip and you put your whole self into it and you don't hold anything back and you be fully authentic. I like to quote Brene Brown a lot and one of those quotes is that true belonging does not require us to change who we are. It requires us to be who we are. And there's another quote from a saint that if you be who you were made to be, you'll set the world on fire. I know what that feels like now. And I think that you can too. You just do not realize how important you are to the world. And there isn't a place that I could imagine that's better to do that than traveling with a school corps and being part of this organization. 
In episode 147, our CEO at the Global Autism Project, Molly Olapini, was joined by the co-founder of the International Behavior Analysis Organization, Dr. Michael Mueller. The IBAO certifies practitioners to ensure ethical practices, protect consumers, and maintain appropriate educational standards in the field of ABA around the world. In this clip, Dr. Mueller offers his tips for practitioners. There's a lot of opportunity to do good. There's a lot lot of opportunity to take shortcuts and do things the wrong way. The idea, the requirement, not a legal requirement, but the, the kind of the community requirement to get certified to do things the right way does not exist everywhere. So my advice would be, even though it's challenging and even though when you're at the beginning of the process and the beginning of your journey, it does seem overwhelming when you're talking about, you know, five or six college level classes and supervision and supervisors and a new work environment, all these different things. Just know it was, it looked that way to everybody, right? And, and take the first step, meet the requirements, go down the right road, do it the right way, get certified, and then continue to learn. Even though it feels like it when you're starting, the certification is not the finish line. The certification is the field our industry is saying, now you're qualified to begin. So keep that milestone as an important one. And then know once you're past it, the learning never stops. Be a consumer of research, be a consumer of the publications of our field, get quality CEUs, go to events, network, build up the infrastructure and the ABA community around you, lift people up behind you so that they have an easier chance to, to come up as you did. So that, that would be my advice. Keep on going. Episode 148 was a Global Autism Community Roundtable event about autistic identity, facilitated by community moderator Andrew Bennett. If you'd like to join and participate in any of our future events, sign up for our community today at community.globalautismproject.org. In these next clips, self-advocates Michael Gilberg and Thomas Island and community member Rosetta Walker discuss what is, quote, normal, person-first versus identity-first language, and respecting other people's identities. One thing I always say when you talk about the idea of making autistic people typical that's been around forever, the idea is, and obviously there is no typical, is, you know, I always say to people, there is no normal. So what does it mean to make somebody indistinguishable? Indistinguishable from what? Because there is no normal. It's the same with how you want to be identified. Mm-hmm. The, 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 I think the big challenge is that there's so many ways out there to be identified. Everybody has their own. It's like anything else. There is no normal in terms of how people want to be identified. When I was young, I read a book by Jerry Newport called your life is not a label. And from that moment on, I discovered the importance of seeing people for who they are first and what they have to offer more so than what we may label them as. And on that note, I choose person-first language because my philosophy is if you want to be acknowledged and accepted by humanity, you must first acknowledge and accept your own humanity. If we put people into boxes or circles or segregate and separate them, that doesn't encourage unification and discussion on what we have in common. So I think we are all members of the human race. And by saying I am a man with autism, I am a person, first and foremost, a living, breathing human being. I think that shows, for me at least, great self-respect and that my diagnosis doesn't have to be my definition. And that has helped me a lot in my life personally and professionally. That's my two cents on person versus identity first. I think if people would start with respect, respecting one another, because everyone doesn't see everything the same way. We all have a different way we view things and wanting to be identified. And I feel if you respect that person for how they want to be identified and not focus on what's right and what's wrong, because there is no right way or wrong way then the community continue to grow and come together like this instead of apart based on if a person doesn't agree how someone else may identify themselves. I think just coming together and using that respect first would make a huge difference. 
Episode 149 featured Stephen Flynn, a music teacher with over three decades of experience. As a master trainer of the Rhythmic Arts Project curriculum, Stephen facilitates percussion ensemble classes to students of all diagnoses. In this clip, he explains the benefits of learning a musical instrument. Music teaches discipline. It helps with focus, helps with listening. I have all of my piano students hum, even students that are not yet verbal, hum the notes. And when you hum the notes with a piano, for example, it's very good for stress. And I think that there's a lot of spillover into every area of a person's life as a result of playing a musical instrument. I teach a piano using an alternative notation system where the notes are colored and we put colored bands on the fingers that correlate to the notes. And I find that to be very effective. And while it's still good for ocular motor strengthening, it's not as challenging as reading standard Western notation. A couple of the other things that I do is I teach West African rhythms to students And I also, I think I'm the only uh, person in the country, in America, that specializes in teaching the drum set to autistic students online. That's, you know, I figured out a a method of doing that that involves phonics that makes it much easier for the student to learn actually how to play the drum set, how to play rhythms, how to play a fill in the correct place, and how to play along to records. And then the other protocol that I do is the Rhythmic Arts Protocol, and that's really geared for cognitive development. And while it's musical in nature, it's not like studying a musical instrument because our objectives are much different than a musical instrument. We're primarily working on cognitive development through a multi-sensory protocol. So for example, we work with forced responses, prepositional concepts, lateral movements, spelling. But like here, I'm showing you on, on, on the screen here, an octagon. So I would show this to a student. I would say, what is the name of this shape? And I would have them play it on the drum. Octagon. Then I would have them count the sides as I point. And if appropriate, I would have them spell octagon. So they see the exercise, they hear it, and they feel it. So it's tactile, audio, visual combined with speech. And there's a lot of research that seems to indicate that multi-sensory education of this nature is very good for retaining information. In episodes 150 and 151, we took you on a SkillCore journey with our Team India volunteers. Our SkillCore program is an opportunity for professionals and self-advocates to provide meaningful training to our partner autism centers around the world. The first half of this two-parter highlighted our Global Autism Project partner, Sangeeta Jain from Soram in Chandigarh, as well as several community members who attended our outreach events in Delhi. There, we met with autistic self-advocates and their family members, as well as various NGO representatives who are doing incredible work in order to make employment accessible for autistic adults in India. In the next three clips, you'll hear Sangeeta sharing why she had to step outside of her comfort zone, autistic self-advocate Akash Vanjari talking about his concerns regarding employment, and founder of Action for Autism, Mary Barwa, discussing some of the fundamentals that employers need to understand. It was totally coming out of my comfort zones and believing in what I can do. And I was so limited to Chandigarh since the past few years. And when I went to Kenya, I met with the self-advocates there. And then when I was like, as we all determined on the last day, what are you taking back to your home, to your community? And it was like, we're going to create a similar platform. And But when I came back, I started exploring in Chandigarh, like who are all working, who are offering jobs. Of course, I've been doing this since a few years, but we did take a little backseat. And then again, I started, this was again an inspiration and I just couldn't find, I mean, I would be very honest that I could not find too many people or just or two, three people. And those, one of them also said like, no, we really don't want to say this, that he's on spectrum. And I was like, I don't know what we are trying and achieving here. And then all of a sudden I said like, how does it really matter even if it is not in Chandigarh? Let's go and do it in Delhi because I knew in Delhi, I was visiting Delhi to, you know, learn like 
what kind of job opportunities are people getting on the spectrum and meeting with the ngos with the entrepreneurs so i said it's not looking back it's not about what i can do at sorum it's we have to do it at a bigger platform and maybe this is what is required at this point but it wasn't very easy when i went to meet people i started speaking and everyone was like why are you doing this what's your agenda so on everyone wanted detailed everything but i could see in myself that patiently i was getting into you know the talks which probably i would have never done and i was explaining to them to the self advocates to the ngos to the entrepreneurs one by one speaking them explaining what we are trying to achieve over here my number one concern for autistic people in in india is that actually means a uh, whole world is going towards like first uh, school then college then employment but we are not uh, actually trying to figure out what does the uh, what does our child want what does autistic child what does he want to do means it's not like everybody should be going through this phase school college and employment we should actually try to figure out like everybody has some strengths and everybody has some weaknesses so we we should always find out what does that actually autistic child or an individual want to do somebody may be very good in playing guitar or somebody may be very good in painting and we don't encourage that we just want them to do like others like school college and employment this is something which is not actually good fits everyone so instead of like trying to push everyone like all autistic individuals to get to school college and employment we should actually try to find out what are their strengths what are their talents and what do they want to do in life and then help them encourage them to into channelizing their own strengths because there is such a strong focus on the behavioral aspect so there is always this thing that oh you know they have challenging behaviors and what do we do about the challenging behavior what employers need to understand and what people who imagine they're supporting them need to understand is that autistic people don't have behaviors whatever behaviors they have come because the environment is not supportive of them if the environment was supportive of autistic people they would not have the so called behaviors because we do not provide the environment that they require then they have behaviors and then they say oh we need to do behavior modification we don't need to do that we just need to make the environment autism friendly just as we would make a work environment friendly for deaf colleagues or blind colleagues or colleagues who are wheelchair users the same is what we have to do for autistic people and till that understanding is brought to employers and is also there in lot of the people who are supposedly supporting autistic people in employment but not really understanding that till that changes this will continue to be a huge huge obstacle in employment for our autistic citizens part 2 of this special skill core india series highlighted some of our volunteers personal experiences and takeaways Here are Melissa Badisher, Cheryl Albright, and Haley Perez talking about global collaboration. TJ Lara, Morgan Ferguson, and Belen Buenrostro sharing how they grew personally. Abby Chambers and Jenny Niemeyer-Heaton discussing their leadership style. Kelsey Larsh and Natalie Woods explaining their new commitments to their own communities back home. And Angie Gilmore and Danielle Terrell's tips for future SkillCore travelers. every community there's something that we can learn from them something that they can learn from us and i think that's the main goal with collaboration is that it's a partnership not one person doing all of the teaching or all of the receiving there's always growth that can be made with everybody involved we only know by really taking the time to listen and understand what the needs are so that we can then work together to move forward because someone else's idea of what's best for them or what's best for their community might not fully align with what my projecting of what i think might be best for them would be and that's usually due to a lack of understanding so being able to work with people allow them to teach us 
knowing what it is that they're wanting to gain from those experiences and then allowing them to function without us present is so important because we don't want to be the people that are just coming in and then stripping people of all the resources once we leave. We want people to be able to continue to function and flourish independently from any other organizations and functioning toward what it is that they're wanting to accomplish. No one country is doing everything perfect. And there's a big opportunity to learn from each other. West isn't best. We should all be learning from each other anyway, as just humans. So if we continue to have these conversations, it's no different, like if you compare it to business networking and reaching out to other people and other business owners and other maybe people in your same profession and It's no different. It's just now it's global. I was at a table with Action for Autism, and and I don't remember the gentleman's business name, but he was doing a lot of the diversity, equity, inclusion work and trying to figure out how they all collaborate and how they all work together because they seem to have a better ecosystem. There wasn't competition. There wasn't, it was like, we get funded this way. This is how we get funded. This is how we work together. To make sure that, you know, people with disabilities get jobs. It didn't matter what the marginalized community was. I think Al spoke to all of the different populations that they work with to try to get jobs at Lemon Tree and things like that. And there does seem to be more of a family or communal or tribal or however you want to look at it, collaborative approach that was different than here in the U.S., when I applied for Skill Corps, I had actually been looking for Skill Corps, I like to say. I was had learned all about, you know, white civilism and, you know, about how a lot of these trips can really do things that are more damaging than they are helpful. So I think in theory, I felt like I already knew about this, but then actually being there and going into the trip and fighting with my expectations of wanting to have a permanent product, wanting to you know, just do something simple and feel like I accomplished something when the goal is really to listen, to set the seeds and help them grow so that they can grow on their own. So I think it shifted to being like, even if you think you already know, you really don't, you have to keep going. You have to really try. And I think it's something that without seeing it, without doing it, it can be really hard to do it right. I think even some some of us who were there constantly wanted to, you know, thought that we knew the answers, thought that this was a country that needed our help and we were the Americans and we were coming in and we were going to do blah, 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 blah. Not that everyone's American, but I think, you know, taking that step back and seeing that the strengths that, that they've already done and the gains that they've already made, seeing that we can learn from them as well, I think was so impactful for me. It's expanded my scope. I, I think I always think of myself as a clinician. And I am now considering myself uh, more of an advocate, and that's adding just so much more to my clinical practice, because now when working with families and advocating for them and the kids and all that, it's something that I think has just vastly expanded my impact factor, because I think we just have sometimes a narrow scope of what it means to help others. And while I like to think I'm a good clinician, I'd like to also think that I'm a good advocate. And so just being able to bring that to the table as well is only going to improve clinical outcomes, quality of life outcomes, really just the whole lifespan development when it comes to working with these children and families. I was not a public speaker. I still kind of trip over my words, but this experience has helped me grow professionally with standing up for myself, having a voice, and having articulating myself the proper way professionally. I definitely think that I've outgrown my current position, and I am definitely willing to take on bigger projects because of this trip with India. I think just in my confidence and my voice, I shared with Molly at the orientation about just the power of asking. And how I've grown from that. And I talked to her about how as a child of immigrants, we're taught to assimilate usually and just kind of fit in. Don't don't do anything that's going to make you stick out or that might bring too much attention. Don't ask for anything that's not given to you and that kind of thing. So really learning how to advocate for myself and others, 
ask for things that I want. I think that's been a huge thing, just learning to ask. And actually in my agency that I work for, I was able to get our Spanish-speaking RBTs a raise because I asked. I said, hey, I see that this isn't a thing. Can we do this? And they were like, yeah, of course. And then I was able to help initiate that and bring that to fruition and, you know, have like a, a system of testing and verifying and fluency and all of that and and get them a raise. I think I grew in confidence just in my own leadership style. We talked a lot about how there's not one specific type of leader. And I think I do have a lot of characteristics that fall under what you like commonly think of as a stereotypical leader. Um, but I also have a lot of characteristics that I always felt like didn't really fit in that box. And so I came away very encouraged in how to like use those strengths as well in leadership roles because leaders can look very different and a lot of different qualities can support leadership styles. I am very much like a come alongside you kind of leader, I think. I'm not really one that's great at getting up and giving a super powerful speech or a motivational speech. I'm not one that necessarily always wants to be in the spotlight, which is why I've always kind of questioned how that fits into leadership. But I think that I'm very much kind of finding my way as a leader that just wants to come alongside people and empower them and support them in being the best versions of themselves. And I think when you can do that genuinely and do that authentically and really care about the people you're supporting, they do the same for you. And it creates this very good relationship of like, I'm going to lead by example and I'm going to lead by supporting you and empowering you. It's important that the initiative, motivation, and formulation of support needs lays with the party in need of help. True leadership is like teaching someone to ride a bike. It's about allowing the individual to step up on that bike independently guiding, providing help where necessary, and letting go and cheering. Something that I had a hard time coming up with is like, what is my commitment? I work with younger learners for the most part, and I always thought, you know, this doesn't apply to what I'm doing, or it's not relevant to to the population that I'm working with. When in reality, I think I'm kind of doing them a disservice by, you know, avoiding the fact that they are going to grow up, they are going to soon be facing these challenges, and that if I'm not talking about them, if I'm not bringing them up, then I am, you know, in some ways setting them up to be unsuccessful when they, when they reach that point. So my commitment is to being willing to have those conversations, but to bring that into perspective, I think for parents and for families and for caregivers that we will reach that point eventually. And what can we be doing in our now to help us be successful when we get there versus kind of pushing it off like that's something to address down the road. Firstly, I came to realise during the trip, because I work with children and not with adults, I don't actually know very much about the services available for adults in the UK. So one of the things I wanted to commit myself to was at least finding out about that and seeing what services are available and what do they look like and maybe how do they compare to what we saw in India. I also am committed to taking four of my new leadership skills and applying them in my job and um, it's particularly the questioning process and listening and using that to help me collaborate with other people. I also, um, so I've always wanted to open an ABA clinic because we don't have them here, but now I feel a bit more inspired that I could maybe look into that a bit more and see what grants are around and see if there's something I could do, maybe not right now, but in the in the future. It's always been a dream, but I've always thought I can't do that. It's, you know, I don't have the money and all this sorts of stuff. But now sort of hearing Sangeeta, I sort of think maybe I could. Maybe I can at least explore what grants are around and what funding might be available, even just to open up something very, very small. I had a lot of fears and concerns prior to doing it. I had actually applied and gotten accepted and then got scared and let my my negative thoughts get the best of me and decided not to travel And I continued to think about it for a whole year. And I decided if I'm still thinking about this a year later, I need to just do it. But some of those thoughts and concerns that were difficult for me the first time around was the fundraising was a big one. I was not confident in myself that I can raise the money to volunteer And I wasn't confident in myself that I can pay for it either. 
So that was a big one for me was really overcoming that scarcity mindset around money, which I've really just always struggled with in my life. And then the second one was that I had so many concerns about safety. I had never traveled internationally and especially not with a group of people that I didn't really know. So I had a lot of concerns about safety, especially being a young woman in a different country where I didn't really know anyone. And I think those were kind of the two biggest concerns that really led me to not follow through the first time that I applied. However, I am incredibly grateful that I was able to overcome those things and volunteer the second time that I applied because it shattered all of those scary thoughts and those negative beliefs. And it was an incredible experience. To future skill core travelers, I would say be open with different opportunities that things will not go as planned and you will get uncomfortable, but know that you're not traveling alone, that everyone on your team has such a big heart and are willing to be a part of something incredible. That's why they're there, right? So even though it's going to feel strange that you're traveling to a country that you may have never been before and you're traveling with people you've probably never met before, you're all here for a reason. And to go in open-minded and to speak up and be vulnerable because this is something new and something incredible. In episode 152, I spoke with David McIntyre, the founder and CEO of Cubby, an immersive personal space of sound and vision that uses personalized sensory regulation technology to regulate people with autism and sensory needs. David is the father of two autistic girls and also neurodivergent himself, diagnosed with dyslexia. This is David explaining the four different types of sensory needs the Cubby team has identified. So when we were doing the research, airs struck us as, as, from an engineering point of view, she had identified four different types of sensory needs. There's the seeker, the bystander, the sensory, and the avoider. My daughter, by the way, is a bystander, my oldest daughter. She stands outside of the of the group. And the reason for that, is, and a lot of autistic people do, is because body language is a barrier for her. And she doesn't understand what the game is or how to interact correctly. So she's always awkward, that awkward person in the group. My youngest daughter is uh, sensory, uh, which you believe she is. She can hear noise. It's incredible. She can hear a, a tap dripping uh, four or five rooms away. And she'll tell you it's annoying her, for instance. And sun as well for light is a trigger for her. It can be painful. And people don't understand this, that actually the sensory inputs can be painful. The seeker is somebody that is understimulated and is seeking stimulus. And the avoider is the opposite. They're overstimulated and they're looking to cut out stimulus. And the idea of Cubby was that if for no matter what sensory type we were, if you were an avoider, you could go into Cubby and there'd be nothing in there. It would be a blank space, as I said. So that it would, the stimulus is, is deadened. Or if you were a seeker, you can have an audiovisual experience that actually meets your needs in the same space. In episode 153, I was joined by Anthony Sevrieri, who is autistic, and his older sister, Alexis, who is neurotypical. Some of Anthony's special interests include music and roller coasters, and Alexis is a member of our Skillcore alumni community, having traveled with the Global Autism Project to India and Kenya. In this next clip, Anthony and Alexis share how they came to understand each other's perspectives as adults. I think the biggest thing I would say is her going to college and her going, staying away at college. And you know what they say, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Yeah. So then you guys missed each other. <laughs> a little bit. I was surprised that how much Anthony missed me. I felt like in some ways, I think I felt closer to Anthony than he did to me at some points. And there were moments of wishing that he, how do I say it? 
I think because when he was very, very little, there were a lot of times that he would come up and he would run and give me a hug if I was crying or things like that. And then as he had gotten older, it was like, does he just hate me? <laughs> and that was so interesting mm. feeling that way. And so when I went away to Salem State, he really was impacted by that. And he would send me little videos that people have made that said, when your sister leaves and you realized you actually liked her or something, you know, <laughs> different things. <laughs> and so I think that that made a bigger part of the closeness came from there. Mm. And I think that my mindset had shifted as well. I carry a lot of guilt with me and almost shame for the thoughts that I had had as a young kid, but I understand where they had come from. There were a lot of instances and you know, I've apologized to Anthony about these things before. We've talked about our experiences on both ends where I would say things like, why did I have to get this brother? And why did, why couldn't I just have a normal brother? And so thinking that I've ever said those things, that's where all that guilt and shame sits. And I think, you know, okay, I was, I was young. I didn't know better. I didn't, I was just going through my experience. And there were times that, you know, I'm, I had realized I had been physically, in an altercation every day that week. And I said, I just want a break. And I don't want, I just want this kid to stop hitting me. And, and so now I think that we've just been able to see it from both perspectives. And that's why I think we were able to get closer seeing what the other person might've experienced on their end. And, you know, there were lots of things that just siblings do. And, I'm very grateful that we do have a very close sibling bond because I see a lot of times siblings who just never speak. They just, once they grow up, they're adults and they just don't talk and anything like that. And so having my brother be one of my very best friends is just such a great blessing to have. Episode 154 was a global autism community event led by moderator Corey Taylor around the topic of neurodiversity affirming practices. Here are self-advocates Andrew Bennett and Brian Middleton talking about the importance of affirming someone's identity and acknowledging their values. Anytime that we are affirming the truth of someone's identity, we are helping them to become more fully realized versions of themselves. The essential part of that is the, I define affirming a couple of different ways. One of them being the philosophical point of view on it, which is Affirming is to declare something as truth and to promote it and to cultivate it. And that can be in the way that we treat somebody or the way that we validate a person's identity or sense of self. In order to do that in a way that's beneficial to the individual, we have to know that that's who they are. And we can base that, particularly with some of the identities that you've mentioned, we can base that on certain facts that we can see and observe and measure, ideally. Now, for autism, the idea of the neurodiversity movement is predicated on the concept that neurodiversity is a real and objective thing, and autism being one of those things. We can look at that and see that it is based in the brain or in old neurotype. It's also manifest in behavior, but it's not as objective as what we see and can measure. And now we'll understand a little bit more about within ourselves. So to be able to affirm that, we can look at that and then see and encourage the development of a sense of self that highlights those qualities that make the autistic individual who they are and so that they can leave a functioning life. The biggest thing is learning how to be a values detective, learning how to ask those questions that get you to identify what matters to that person. And there's so many different ways that we can look and tell somebody's values. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes time. But when you identify values, that's a pivotal point. A lot of times I hear people saying, well, you know, control is not a function of behavior, but they're so controlling. Maybe because they value having control over their environment <laughs> and you should give them that choice instead of trying to make them have to take it from you over and over again, instead of being an impediment in their environment, being appetitive, meaning making them want to be around you. And it all goes back to those values and, and being a detective. And sometimes the best way to identify values is to look at what they're moving away from, because on the opposite of that is values, usually, almost always. But it's also like just being willing to step back, let them take the helm because it's their helm. It's not yours to take to begin with. 
So stop being a conqueror, a colonizer, or whatever you want to insert name-wise in their life. Stop being that. Stop thinking that you have to save them and step back because it's not yours to control. It's theirs to control. You can guide, you can help, you can protect. But at the end of the day, I hate the term stakeholder because that has so much loaded stuff in it. The only person who has a stake in my life is me because it's mine. Neurodivergent author and illustrator Sivan Hong came on the show for episode 155. Sivan's best-selling children's series, The Super Fun Day Books, celebrates the triumphs of neurodiverse children as they face challenges with determination and courage. Listen to Sivan, who is also the mother of two neurodiverse children, explain the difference between social stories and traditional children's books. When you really think about a social story, it's supposed to be a very simple story And it uses pictures and user-friendly language and explains kind of expectations and rules for different kinds of social situations. And it has like one or two sentences on a page, really tries to be simple. And it's structured. It sets up kind of here's the situation. Here are the feelings that you're going to feel. Here are the steps that you take in order to have a positive outcome. And then here's the positive outcome you're going to have. So it's very, very structured. And all of my books are set up with this kind of structure. In fact, every child, every protagonist, I guess, in in my book will lay out the kind of five reasons why they don't want to do or are afraid of whatever it is that they're about to face. Every single book does this, and then it lays out kind of the solution to that. And they're real tips. They're not just, you know, ideas. Like these are real tools that teachers or parents use in the classroom. And then at the end, the child is very proud of themselves because they are able to do this on their own. A traditional children's book is going to have an arc of a story, right? Here's the character. Here's what happens to the character, the end. And it's, at times can be educational. They can have morals but it is not as rigid and it is not as structured. Oftentimes neurodivergent kids enjoy the structure because they know what's going to happen, right? Here are the steps. They're clearly laid out. They're numbered in my case. And here's the solution. And they're clearly laid out and they're numbered. And so it allows them to access that information in a way that they may not be able to do otherwise. Ali Carbone joined me in episode 156. Ali is a Brooklyn-based writer and the oldest sibling to three autistic brothers. In her most recent book, What Are You Looking At?, she writes about her journey of finding herself and rewiring her own brain. In this clip, Ali talks about how being the non-autistic sibling in her family affected her psyche. I hate attention. It, It made me be okay with like living in the shadows. And it's actually gotten to the point where like, I have a hard time ever putting myself first because my entire life, there wasn't just one person whose needs was more important important than mine. There were three. So it's natural for me to just take the backseat in every situation and think that not only is it okay, but that I should. Hmm. And that's definitely made me kind of progress slower than I think a lot of my peers, because I am kind of constantly not putting myself first. And for good reason, I feel right. Like I never, I always felt like it was an honor to be the sister of my brothers. Like I always feel like I wouldn't be who I am. I wouldn't be kind. I wouldn't be compassionate. Like I love my personality. I like being like a good person, but I think you know, since, since this book and like this personal journey, like, let's call it that I'm realizing that like, where I used to hold it as like my shield of armor, like a, a badge, like I loved it. Now I'm like, I'm behind. Like, I wish that I had the same emotional opportunities to grow and develop like innocently, like the rest of my peers did. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are I guess, parentification, right? Like that's the term glass children. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be that you have a disabled sibling or a sick sibling. It could be addiction. It could be growing up in poverty. Like it's, there's so many people that 
don't get to have a childhood and there are a lot of adults walking around with, you know, child selves. They are just kids in adult bodies. And I think that's super important for people to realize. In episode 157, community moderator Danielle Terrell hosted a global autism community roundtable discussion about accessibility and accommodations. Here's SkillCore alum Brenda Canas discussing advocacy skills and mothers Nina Wag and Karen Shapiro talking about parenting. I think as parents are tackling those accommodations and ensuring that they have the right diagnoses, ensuring that the, you know, their kids are getting the appropriate support, we can also start labeling emotions and teach them at a young age. And at a young age, it might just be like, they're not able to like emotionally regulate. They, we can teach them to say, I'm feeling frustrated. I need a break. That's advocacy within itself because everyone should respect that. I've never not respected that with working with a like as someone so young or someone, you know, on the older end, like I've worked with all ages. And if they ever say that I back off, I'm like, okay, my bad. Let's, let's go back. What's frustrating. And it's either me asking them or it's either me trying to figure out like, oh yeah. And like, I'll try to narrate for them. Like, oh yeah, we're doing math. My bad, dude. I didn't tell you we we're going to do it. Let's take a break. Let's do something else. You know, and then like in five minutes, let's come back to it. So I think that that advocacy starts with just being able to label emotion and then everyone like as humans, we should just respect that, whether we understand what's going on or not. It's like no means no. Right. And really respecting that. Yeah, the parenting is a little heavy handed, you know, in that sense. It's uh, the cultural thing, whatever. And especially when a child who is nonverbal or is more prompt driven so the mother's role become very overarching on that she wants to decide everything and uh, we are not really really reached there where we are teaching even our uh, non-verbal children to become self-advocates in so many other ways there are so many other ways when we say self-advocate doesn't mean that the child will go and do a flag march on the streets or something there are many ways like on day-to-day basis but even to make the parents understand that, especially the mothers, is a tough task for us because um, so the child, when he gets into his teens, the mothers are still talking to them as if they would be talking to a six-year-old. And now that child starts asserting himself. So they associate that assertion with, oh, he's having a meltdown or he's having a, uh, you know, behavior issues. No, because you have not switched from uh, addressing the cute, cuddly guy who is now turned into, you know, a strappy, uh, moustache-toting teenager. You know, you have to switch your gaze. And when that doesn't happen, there's these jerks happens. That is what I meant. Most of the time, I have to tell them, he's a teenager. You have to now uh, change your tone, you change your mannerism. You have to accommodate. The reasonable accommodation has to start with the parenting itself. And I think the most important thing is for the parents to be open to whatever is going on and to embrace and not, A, take it personally and B, and really not deny it. I think the worst thing a parent can do is deny what is being told to them by professionals. And, And a lot of that comes out of fear. And a lot of that comes out of um, blame that they blame themselves and it comes out of I think it's less so now, maybe because there's more autism out in the world, but feeling ashamed and there's nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing wrong. Yes, it's guilt driven. I agree. It's a lot of guilt driven. I think you have to take it out of you personally and embrace it because you love your child and you want to help your child and you want to be there for your child, that whatever's going on, I think the worst thing a parent can do is deny what's going on. And I've seen it really hurt the child. And so I think as parents, we want to give and we have their best interest always at heart, I'm sure. And with that, you have to embrace and figure out what works best and how to and ask questions and seek. It's hard. It's not easy. I know parenting is the hardest job 
and there's no book for it and there's no one way to do it. You know, you can't be taught how to do it. So you have to just come from an open heart, a loving heart. And uh, I want to do what's best for my child and not take it personally. Last but certainly not least, episode 158 was a special Thanksgiving episode in which we celebrated the Global Autism Project's 20-year anniversary. Our team, and myself included, also shared what we're grateful for this year. Here's our CEO, Molly, talking about how thankful she is for the last 20 years. There are so many incredible people who have been here through thick and very, very thin, um, you know, times. And it's a bit cliche, but it's like, I have so much gratitude for the, you know, thousand plus skill core members. And I've probably had hundreds of people on this team over the years and our partners and our supporters. And just, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty wild to, to be here 20 years later. You really can have nothing but gratitude, I think, in this to have gotten here. And that's a wrap. As I was reflecting on these past episodes from 2023, I was overcome with immense gratitude for our community. A huge thank you to our guests for sharing their stories, to you, our listeners, for your continued support, and to our team for all the work behind the scenes. Special thanks to Anne Nock and Danielle Terrell for helping to manage guest communications in social media, and to all of our community moderators this year, Andrew Bennett, Cassidy Hooper, Stefan Guidon, Corey Taylor, and Christina Kasperson for monitoring posts and keeping our online space safe and respectful. If you didn't listen to part one of this year's highlights or are curious about what we were up to in previous years, you can find links to all of our highlight series in our show notes. From all of us at the Global Autism Project, we wish you a happy and safe holiday season and hope you can spend some quality time with your loved ones. Thanks for tuning in. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.